3: Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today, our episode consists of two segments. The first is the NBC News update of March 17, 1942, with reports on the war in Europe and Asia from London, New York, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. The second segment is a portion of the broadcast and analysis of the draft lottery later that evening from Philadelphia. This was the first draft lottery for the United States of World War II. The World War II Radio Podcast is a brick pickle media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast. And thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing, whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
4: Now, ladies and gentlemen, the latest war news is brought to you by staff reporters both at home and abroad. And the first news today comes from London, England.
0: This is Robert St. John in London. We have two indications today of how the British are helping the Russians. The Admiralty announces that a British minesweeper in the Arctic... ...has shot down a Nazi plane as it was attacking a Soviet ship. And it was officially announced that those attacks on the Prince Eugen and the Tirpitz... ...have probably broken up concentrations of Nazi ships in Norwegian waters... This, at least temporarily, clears the route to Russia. Correspondents with British ships which hammered the Italian island of Rhodes in the Mediterranean say that they hurled 20 tons of shells into the target in 20 minutes, a smashing blow. Today, it was said officially here that the Chinese and the British have not yet joined forces in Burma. London's financial paper tells us today that Vickers, the big steel and munitions company, has just issued its 1941 statement. Profit for the year amounted to about $4 million. That's a drop from 1940, but the dividend will still be maintained at 10% for the sixth consecutive year. In the same issue of the paper, there's a letter from a reader who says, do we really need the bribe of high wages and salaries to persuade us to the total effort? I suggest that the profit incentive is not relevant to total war. A year ago, Britain's firemen saved England. By day and by night, they fought flames which often threatened to destroy whole cities. They risked their lives not only from falling walls, but from bombs, because there's no better target for a Nazi plane than a burning building. But this year, they've just been standing by, waiting for air raid fires which haven't materialized. And now, like everyone else in England, they want to get to work to help in the great spring war effort. There are 100,000 of them. they figured out a scheme. They want to turn their 20,000 fire stations into miniature factories, factories which would keep working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Many of the firemen are skilled engineers. They figure they could make munitions or airplane parts while they're standing by. They've appealed to the prime minister himself to help them find a way to do useful work instead of just polishing brass. Now here are today's Signs of the Times in England. The government has cut our clothing allowance by 25%. Instead of five and a half coupons a month, we'll get about four. Enough to buy two pairs of silk stockings a month and nothing more. Now we can expect to see more and more British women in slacks. Because you don't have to wear stockings with slacks. The Ministry of Agriculture has told people with greenhouses on their private estates that this year they must raise tomatoes instead of rare flowers. The Ministry of Food may soon forbid public banquets. Because of the scarcity of soap, public restaurants may soon be ordered to limit each guest to one knife and one fork for the whole meal. A banana has just sold here for $10 and a bottle of whiskey for $500. It happened at a public auction. The money goes to buy battleships for Britain. And now, this is Robert St. John in London returning you to New York.
4: Now, here in the New York newsroom, we have news of storms in the United States. At least 115 persons are dead in the wake of a series of tornadoes which swept through six southern and midwestern states yesterday. Hundreds more are injured, and the final count is not yet in. Property damage from early estimates has put at several millions of dollars. Countless houses and barns have been leveled. Livestock lies dead throughout the area. Roads were blocked by fallen trees, and telephone and telegraph lines are down. The Red Cross and relief agencies are caring for thousands of the homeless. Mississippi was hardest hit. Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, and Missouri also were affected. And from Moscow this morning comes word that the Moscow radio says that the German 16th Army trapped at Staraya Rusa has been given a particularly grave setback. Now, that's how it describes the Nazi loss of an important point of resistance in heavy fighting below Leningrad. Frontline dispatches identify the point only as N, but it's situated on the summit of a commanding height. The Soviet Information Bureau announces the destruction of 215 German planes to only 57 Russian losses in the period from March the 8th to the 14th for a victory ratio of nearly four to one and dispatches of Nazis surrendering uh, in ever greater numbers in the Ukraine, where Red Marshal Timoshenko is storming the great city of Kharkov for coming through. Now, this would indicate that new advances against the Nazi held Pittsburgh of the Ukraine, Kharkov, with its 800,000 Russian inhabitants. Earlier dispatches from Stockholm told of Russian forces cutting off reserve 140 miles north of Moscow, and a major base of German operations against the entire front, below Leningrad, and Red Army columns were also said to be closing in on the large city of Kursk, just above Kharkov, and Russian parachute troops were said to have established themselves behind Nazi lines on the front at Smolensk, and Moscow says that 215 German planes were destroyed last week against a Russian loss of 57. And now let's get a picture of the Far East fighting from the newsroom in San Francisco.
5: From our San Francisco newsroom, we bring you the latest reports of the Far East. Lieutenant General Harold Alexander, new commander-in-chief in in Burma, said today that the Imperial forces have worked out new strategic and tactical plans. Plans in which they have started stabbing at the Japanese in vigorous, local, offensive actions. He said the Japanese appear to be driving first toward the Tharawadi oil fields and Prome. 150 miles north northwest of Rangoon, and secondly up the Satang River Valley and the Rangoon Mandalay Railroad in an attempt to capture Mandalay and cut communications between lower and upper Burma. Alexander said the Japanese are seeking oil, which they need badly after finding oil fields in the Netherlands East Indies destroyed in the Dutch scorched earth destruction. Imperial troops are now in contact with the enemy in the Shwegyin area, 100 miles northeast of Rangoon, along the Satang River and the railroad to Mandalay. In one of the first of their new offensive stabs, the Imperial forces have retaken Shwegyin on the Japanese side of the river, 20 miles to the west on the railroad. At the west side of the front, there is no real contact with the Japanese south of Tharawadi, and only patrol actions are in progress at the moment. Alexander said recent British reverses in Burma were due partly to over-mechanization of front-line forces, which limited defensive operations to roads, while the Japanese used tracks and jungle paths to move by night through the forests, where airplanes could not spot them and tanks could not operate. Alexander frankly admitted Japanese successes against Imperial troops who had not been trained in jungle warfare. However, he said British troops had fought magnificently and named the Duke of Wellington's regiment, the King's own Yorkshire Light Infantry, the West Yorkshire Regiment, the Gloucestershire Regiment, and the Tank Corps as having fought gallant actions. Of the Chinese forces who have now joined their line with that of the Imperials in Burma, Alexander said that their discipline is excellent and they have very sound ideas about how to deal with the Japanese. After reviewing the mistakes the Imperials had made by sticking to roads while the Japanese avoided them, he said that the Imperial forces are now far enough advanced in jungle warfare training to oppose Japanese infiltration. Despite the loss of Rangoon, he said, the battle for Burma has not yet begun. He said only two months remain for large-scale operations because of weather conditions and said that in spite of immense difficulties, he was optimistic regarding the future. He said it had been found impossible to hold Rangoon against a siege, and that it had been abandoned rather than risk disaster in leaving nothing between the Japanese and the oil fields of central Burma. In the southwest Pacific, allied commanders are seeking to mass in Australia a great defensive and offensive force. It was understood today. As Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson announced at Washington the arrival of United States forces on the Australian continent. Well informed sources say it is the intention of the Allied commands first to stop the Japanese when they attack Australia and then to move out to regain the rich territories which the Japanese have taken and win the war. Australians asserted on the basis of latest developments that only the failure of civil as well as military cooperation between the United States and Australia can lead to the conquest of Australia. Authoritative opinion is that the Japanese will find it difficult to take Australia. They will be facing white troops in a white man's country instead of small white forces in colonies teeming with natives. The British, Australian and Dutch troops whom the Japanese faced elsewhere were better man for man. They will be facing larger forces than they have faced before with more equipment, and the men they face will be trained in latest Japanese tactics. Since the Pacific War started, and especially since the disaster of Singapore, Australian Army discipline and training have been tightened. The Army has been brought to full strength, and all able-bodied men have been made liable to service. It is the opinion here that Japan must attack Australia in order to ensure that it is cut off from the supplies and manpower of the United States. Japanese tactics have by now been well demonstrated. They will prove difficult in Australia. It is like an ocean with three islands in it, the northwestern, southwestern, and southeastern corners, separated by 500,000 square miles of dry country. The Japanese have resumed aerial attacks on the northwest corner, the Darwin-Windham-Broom area. And that's the news from the Far East, from the newsroom in San Francisco. We take you now across the continent to our newsroom in Washington.
1: Good morning. Claude Mahoney speaking from Washington. There are two bills on the Hill now that would affect labor drastically, and both of them are brewing up their own little fights. Secretary Perkins filed her opposition to the Reed bill to suspend the 40-hour week for the duration. We don't know what was in her report, But Senator Thomas of Utah, chairman of the Labor Committee, said of course it was adverse. Then the other bill is much sharper. It was put in by Representative Smith of Virginia and Representative Vinson of Georgia and would not only suspend the 40-hour week for the duration, but would abolish overtime, outlaw closed shops, and limit profits to 6%. In order to get around the Labor Committee, which probably would be a little cool to a bill that strong, it applies only to naval construction work and thus goes into the naval committee of which Vincent is chairman. He says hearings will start this week and the bill will be on the floor soon. Of course, when it got out, it could be amended to include all fields of labor, not only just the naval. Representative Mary Norton of New Jersey, chairman of the Labor Committee, sums up her opinion of that bill by saying, all these people are trying to do is to use the war to scuttle the wage hour law and deprive labor of its rights. The only new aspect of the Selective Service drawing that I can find this morning is that the fact that the capsules in which the numbers are placed are going to be green tonight. Green in honor of St. Patrick's Day. The drawing will begin in the big departmental auditorium on Constitution Avenue at 6 o'clock with a short talk by General Hershey opening the show. The actual pulling of the first number will come about 6.15 when Secretary Stimson sticks his hand into the goldfish bowl and brings out the number. He'll be blindfolded, of course, and will be fishing entirely in the dark. Other dignitaries will follow him, and finally the drawing will settle down to a steady all-night job with workers from Selective Service Headquarters pulling the capsules. And with this drawing, the men of 20 years and those of 36 to 44 will be assigned numbers for possible induction. The House and the Senate... Both are hot on the trail of Robert R. Guthrie to find out about his charges that differences of opinion within the Textile Division of the War Production Board forced his retirement in discouragement. Mr. Guthrie has been asked to come before a special House subcommittee, and on the other side, Senator Truman's Defense Investigating Committee also is planning to call him. In the meantime, Donald Nelson, the production boss, is making his own investigation. Not much new today on the tremendously important bill to establish a woman's auxiliary army corps, but the experts on Capitol Hill say it will go right through. It would provide thousands of $21 a month women for use in a variety of war work, for use almost anywhere that would release a man for combat duty. And interestingly enough, right here in Washington, there's starting a school for filling station operators, teaching those operators how to teach you and me to take care of our automobile tires and, if possible, to make those tires last three years. And that's the news from
4: Washington at this time. That's the latest news of the world. You've heard Robert St. John from London, Claude Mahoney from Washington, and reports by the newsrooms in San Francisco and New York. For the latest news, keep tuned to this station. This
1: program came to you from New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Um mm. you.
3: March 17, 1942, the United States of America is at war. To fight its war to a victorious conclusion, manpower is needed. To secure that manpower, the selective service system was established in the nation. Today, the third lottery will take place to determine the order in which some nine million men between the ages of 20 and 45 may be inducted into the armed forces to serve their country. The microphones of the National Broadcasting Company are set up now in the Departmental Auditorium on Fame Constitution Avenue in the nation's capital to bring you this dramatic ceremony, the first to take place since America entered the war. We are standing now just below the stage of the auditorium where the actual drawing will occur, The historic goldfish bowl which served during the First World War and in the two previous drawings in 1940 and 41 is set up now in a small stand at the front of the stage. Just a few short minutes ago... The green capsules, 7,000 of them, were poured into the bowl from a special mixing machine that has been churning numbers all night. The bowl is almost filled with them now. As a matter of fact, the bowl is the extension that serves just above the bowl is not quite filled. Flanking the stage is a special guard of green-clad Irish war veterans. There's a huge board backstage center upon which the numbers will be recorded. The slips themselves will be photographed in proper sequence and then preserved in order. The slips inside the green capsules are numbered from 1 to 7,000. Each number is preceded by a T, signifying the third drawing. The men holding the number drawn first will get the order number 10,001. The second number will be drawn, will be assigned order number 10,002, and so on through the 7,000 numbers, which will take about 12 hours to completely draw from the goldfish bowl. The first capsule will be drawn by the Secretary of War, the Honorable Henry L. Stimson. But now the director of the Selective Service System, Brigadier General Lewis B. Hershey, has come to the stand on the stage here and will speak very briefly. General Hershey is standing at the stand now. He will speak in just a Americans moment.
2: Americans everywhere, we are assembled tonight to establish the priority for selection of the millions of our men who registered last month. Modern war demands a great variety of tasks from the citizens of a nation. This is everyone's war. Each of us has a stake in it. Each of us must do an essential job to win it. We have the resources in men, machines, and materials to win this war. We must use them for that purpose. We do not have enough to dissipate valuable materials, priceless machines, precious manpower, on luxuries or comforts or even on worthwhile projects unless they are absolutely essential, directly or indirectly, to the winning of this war. Tonight, we formally add millions to that pool of men who stand ready for selection for the necessary tasks whatever they may be. Selection to be applied in the democratic way by your fellow citizens in your community. Your fellow citizens and mine, the members of the local boards in every community are selecting men to do the job for which they are best fitted. The members of the local boards give their services without compensation because they believe in our government. They have done a difficult job in an outstanding manner. They will accept the ever-increasing work and responsibility with the same efficiency and fairness which have characterized their efforts heretofore. Millions of men have registered for service Behind them stand other millions of men and of women, united in their faith, in our way of governing ourselves. We have freedoms we treasure. To hold them, we will work and we will fight. Mr. Secretary, will you draw the first number?
3: You have heard General Hershey, director of the Selective Service System, speak very briefly. He turned to the Secretary of War, the Honorable Henry L. Stimson, and invited him to draw the first number. Well, the dramatic moment has arrived, the drawing will begin, and nine million men throughout the United States are awaiting the results. The Secretary of War is now on the stage, standing just in front of the bowl. Colonel John D. Langstone is at his side with a blindfold. The bit of cloth was taken from a piece of furniture used during the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Secretary Stimson has drawn the first capsule. He is holding it up now, holding it high in the air in his right hand. He hands it to the first of three young ladies seated at a desk just to the left of the bowl. She unscrews the capsule, hands it to the second young lady who takes from the green capsule the slip and puts it in a form. The third young lady looks at the slip, puts it in a special card and hands it to General Hershey who will announce the first number.
2: The Secretary of War, the Honorable Henry L. Simpson... Stimson has drawn T3485.
3: T3485. First number has been drawn by Secretary of War Stimson. It was number 3T3485. And now the Secretary of Navy, the Honorable Frank Knox, steps to the bowl here. He is also blindfolded by Colonel Langston with this very historic piece of cloth. The blindfold is being tied about the eyes now of uh, Secretary Knox. He steps to the goldfish bowl. His hand is directed. His left hand goes into the bowl. He takes out one capsule, hands it to the young lady here who unscrews the capsule, hands it to her companion directly to her right, who takes the slip out, puts it in a small wooden form and examines it. Then the third young lady takes it inserts it in a card, and again the card is handed to General Hershey and the second number drawn.
2: The Secretary of the Navy, the Honorable Frank Knox, has drawn T-2850, T-2850.
3: The second number drawn by the Secretary of Navy, Mr. Knox, is T-2850. And now, the third number is to be drawn. It will be drawn by the Honorable Andrew J. May, the chairman of the House Military Affairs Committee. The Honorable Mr. May is now being blindfolded. His left hand is being guided to the goldfish bowl. He takes one capsule from it, hands it to the young lady here at the table, who again unscrews the capsule lid and will hand it to the second young lady. And that procedure will be repeated. It is estimated for the next 12 hours throughout the night and into the early morning to complete this drawing of 7,000 numbers. But here is the third number.
2: (coughs) The Honorable Andrew J. May, chairman of the Military Affairs Committee of the House, has drawn T. Four three zero one, T four three zero one.
3: The third number to be drawn, T four three zero one, T four three zero one. And now the fourth number will be drawn. It will be drawn by the Honorable James W. Wadsworth, of the House of Representatives, the co-author of the Burke-Wadsworth Bill that set up the Selective Service System. He too is being blindfolded, standing directly in front of this large goldfish bowl filled with green capsules he dips in he goes down into the goldfish bowl and selects a capsule hands it to the young lady who again unscrews the lid of the capsule and hands it to her companion the companion takes the slip from the capsule inserts it on a form who hands it to the third young lady into a card and it is again handed to General Hershey and the fourth number will be announced
2: Mr. Wadsworth has drawn T-441 T-441
3: and thus, the fourth number to be drawn is now posted on the great board backstage center here in the departmental auditorium. It is T441. And now we will repeat again the four numbers that were drawn first in this, the third draft lottery. The first number is 3485. The second one, T2850. The third number drawn, 4301 and the fourth number drawn, four four one. And so the first number was drawn by the Secretary of War, the Honorable Henry L. Stimson. Other officials have drawn numbers from the Goldfish Bowl. Others are still on the stage to draw numbers. Many on the stage will be blindfolded so that they too may participate in this fateful and historic occasion. The Director of the Selective Service System, Brigadier General Hershey, spoke very briefly. This broadcast has come to you from the Departmental Auditorium in Washington. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Hmm.